Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is Sunday, September the 11th, uh, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Let's thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Once again, to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, this special edition of our program. Later on, uh, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll feature uh, dispatches on the growing uh, African carbon market on the continent in light of climate change around the world. In addition, the demand for fossil fuels in Africa has shed new light on the shifting international energy market. Efforts are underway to protect the African rainforest in the central regions of the continent. And in South Africa, a program to close the digital divide has gained media attention. In the second hour, we look back on the legendary poet, playwright, composer, novelist, and public intellectual Langston Hughes through rare archival audio files. Finally, we listened to a briefing from the African Center for Disease Control and Prevention uh, based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. These and other features will be brought to you during the course of our program. Uh, Stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude uh, with the orchestra Kiam Viv from the 1970s. Let's listen in. Kobala kai 
Yeah. 
Welcome back, and uh, that was the music of the Orchestra Kiam V, a classic uh, Pan-African music uh, from 1974. Uh, right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. These are some of the headlines in today's uh, Pan-African Newswire. In villages uh, dotted across the African continent, locals living in once heavily forested regions are starting to find their land in high demand. In Kenya's Gazi Bay, arguably the continent's most famous mangrove or restoration project, thousands of trees have been planted thanks to nearly a decade of concerted efforts to offset carbon dioxide released by faraway governments and companies seeking to improve their climate credentials. The initiative was one of Africa's first steps into the carbon market, where credits uh, to admit greenhouse gases can be bought or sold. Since then, uh, dozens of similar schemes have sprouted across the continent, uh, with African governments now looking to capitalize on this exploding global industry. The continent is home to huge swaths of carbon-absorbing lands, with forests covering roughly 674 million hectares, or 22.7% of Africa, according to the United Nations Food and Agricultural Organization. A Kuvet Central peatlands deep uh, in the Congo Basin are alone capable of locking in up to 30 billion tons of carbon or three years' worth of world's emissions. Waterside mangrove forests, uh, which are more effective at sucking carbon out of the air than their land counterparts, have swelled in places like Gazi. Community-led voluntary initiatives in Kenya, Mozambique, and Cote d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast, that restore thousands of hectares of forests are supported by large international carbon credit organizations such as Blue Forest and the World Resource Institute. The carbon market is changing everything, said Vahid Batuhi, founder of the Blue Forest Initiative at the Africa Climate Week conference in Gabon in early September. Suddenly, trees are worth more alive than dead. By tapping into carbon markets, communities can access carbon offset funding which helps them <coughs> which helps them conserve uh, their forests whilst also improving livelihoods it's a win-win situation and um, you can read this article in its entirety over the pan-african newswire in other news uh, dozens of demonstrations uh, pro- have protested outside the black rock in New York City, the U.S., in the U.S., to call for them to stop investing in new fossil fuel projects. Uh, That's been taking place since May of this year. Foreign governments are spending more than 30 times more on fossil fuel projects in Africa than on initiatives to lessen the impact of the continent's second biggest killer, air pollution. Research showed just this last past Wednesday. The report released on the International Day of Clean Air showed how little donor nations spend on improving air quality while plowing money into dirty energy and infrastructure projects across the African continent. The United Nations estimates that air pollution kills around 9 million people globally each year, with fossil fuels accounting for two-thirds of the levels of harmful particulates humans are exposed to. The financial benefits of improving air quality alone would far exceed the cost of slashing emissions to meet the Paris Agreement temperature goals 
according to a landmark United Nations climate science assessment in 2022. Yet, as Wednesday's analysis by the Clean Air Fund shows, U.S., European, and Asian governments are still going ahead with fossil fuel-based development projects that will likely worsen already poor air quality in cities along highways across Africa. The fund found uh, that just 0.3% of African countries' development assistance received between 2015 and 2021 had been specifically earmarked for air quality projects despite pollution being responsible for some one in five deaths across the continent wide. During the same period, uh, donor nations provided 36 times more funding for prolonged fossil fuel use on the African continent. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, a tower bristling with searsers juts above the canopy in northern DRC, measuring carbon dioxide, that's CO2, emitted from the world's second largest tropical rainforest. Spanning several countries in Central Africa, the Congo Basin rainforest covers an immense area and is home to a dizzying array of species. But there are growing concerns for the future of the forest, deemed critical, deemed critical uh, for sequestering COT as loggers and farmers push deeper inside the territory. Scientists at the Yangambi Biosphere Reserve in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Shope Province, are studying the rainforest role in climate change, a subject that received scant attention until recently. Standing 55 meters tall, the CO2 measuring flux tower started to work in 2020 in the lush reserve of 250,000 hectares. Yangambi was renowned for tropical agronomy research during the Belgian colonial era. This week, it also hosted scientists as part of a meeting in the Democratic Republic of Congo dubbed the pre the COP27 ahead of the COP27 United Nations Climate Summit that's going to take place in the North African state of Egypt at Shamar Shek this coming November. Thomas Sabret, uh, who runs the Congo Flux CO2 measuring project, said that flux towers are common worldwide, but until one was set up in Yangambe, uh, there had been none in Congo, which had, quote, limited our understanding of this ecosystem, unquote, he said. And this article as well can be read in its entirety on the Pan-African Newswire website. And finally, uh, Moss Marakala uh, was 11 when he first used a laptop at an app school program in Johannesburg, South Africa, sparking an interest in technology that inspired him to provide young people like himself from South African townships with digital education. Today, the 21-year-old runs a production company with his brother and tutors students from townships to become more tech-savvy and enhance their job prospects. I feel like tutoring helps me open up a world for others because IT can create opportunities, Mara Kalala uh, said in Johannesburg at the coffee at the office of Tomorrow Trust, the charity that introduced him to technology and where he now teaches others. The digital divide, the gap between those who have access to technology and the internet and those who do not, is a rising concern to tech experts in African nations, uh, which have some of the world's lowest internet 
captivity rates. This divide is particularly stark in South Africa's townships, which are typically underdeveloped and neglected areas with high rates of poverty, unemployment, and crime. We should utilize smart technology platforms to help others achieve a better life. However, technology is not the answer by itself, said Johann Stein, chair of the Artificial Intelligence and Robotics Interest Groups at the Institute of Information Technology Professionals in South Africa. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then, It uh, has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.com. Thatblogspot.com, and if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, this uh, special worldwide radio broadcast, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. Not only can you have access to today's program for Sunday, uh, September 11, 2022, but well over 1,100 other archived editions of the Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Sound of uh, the legendary Phyllis Hyman uh, with the track entitled I Found Love. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, a special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, September the 11th, 2022. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, right now we're going to look back on uh, a rare archival audio file uh, featuring uh, legends uh, of the African-American uh, literary Culture, and of course, uh, that includes James Baldwin, uh, Lorraine Hansberry, and Langston Hughes. This is from an interview from 1961 in New York City. Uh, let's listen to this recording. To begin the subject, which sounds rather alarmingly vague, the Negro and American culture, I'd like to start with um, the end of a book review that James Baldwin wrote for the New York Times a couple of years ago. Uh, the review was on poems of Langston Hughes, and you concluded by saying he is not the first American Negro to find the war between his social and artistic responsibilities all but irreconcilable. To what extent do you find this true in your own writing uh, in terms of the self-consciousness of being a Negro and a writer, the polarity, if if it exists? Well... Um, the first thing 
the first the first difficulty is is, is really um, so simple that it's usually overlooked. Um, to be a Negro to be a Negro in this country and to be um, relatively conscious is to be in a state of rage almost almost all of the time and in one's work and part of the rage is this it isn't only what is happening to you but it's what's happening all around you and all of the time in the face of the most extraordinary and criminal indifference the indifference of most white people in this country and their ignorance now since this is so, you know, it, it's very—it's a great temptation to um, to simplify the issues under the illusion that if you simplify them enough, people will recognize them. Mm -hmm. I think this illusion is very dangerous because, in fact, it isn't the way it works. You know, a simple thing cannot be a complex thing can't be made simple. You simply have to try to deal with it in all its complexity and hope to get that complexity across. To be a, to be a Negro writer, then, is to. Um, Somehow, I don't know, we can we'll have to kick this around for, for a while. In the same way that you have to um, not knock down the elevator man and the doorman. You know, at some point you have, to, you have to decide that you can't spend the rest of your life cursing out everybody you know, who gets in your way. And some other level, as a writer, you have to decide that what is really important is not that these people are Negroes, but that these people are people. Mm -hmm. And that, if you, and that the suffering of any, of any person is really universal. And if you can never reach this level, if you can create a person and, and make other people feel what this person feels, then it seems to me one's gone much further, um, obviously, you know, not only artistically but socially, than, 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 than the, uh, the ordinary old-fashioned protest way. And mm -hmm. I talked about Langston's, uh, Langston not being the first poet to find these um, responsibilities all but irreconcilable. He's not, and he won't be the last. Um, because it, it also demands a great deal of time to write. It demands a great deal of stepping out of a social, of a social, social situation in order to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And all the time you're out of it, you can't help feeling but a little, a little guilty that you are not, on the, as you were, on the firing line, or, you know, uh, out there sort of um, tearing down the slums and doing all these things, which, in fact, other people can do better than you because it is still terribly true that a writer is very rare. Is that... Yes. <laughs> Lorraine Hansberry, and, uh, you first became widely known through Raisin and the Sun, and in writing that, to what extent did you feel, uh, in a sense, a double role, both as a kind of social actionist, protester, what have you, and as a dramatist? Mm -hmm. Well, I don't, I feel that in connection with what Jimmy was saying, that <clears throat> A thing is probably twice true in this respect, that given the Negro writer, we are necessarily aware of a special situation in the American setting. And that probably works two ways. One of them, making us sometimes forget that uh, there, very there is really very or very limited expression in literature which is not protest, be it black, white, or mm -hmm. what have you, that I can't imagine a contemporary writer any place in the world today who isn't in conflict with his world. Personally, I can't imagine a time in the world when the artist wasn't in conflict, if he was any kind of an artist. Mm -hmm. He had to be. So that it isn't really that unique. We are doubly aware of it because of the special pressures of being a Negro in America. But I think to to destroy the abstraction for the sake of the specific is, in this case, an error. So that 
once we come to that realization, it doesn't get quite as confusing as uh, sometimes we tend to treat it. In my piece that you mentioned, I was <coughs> dealing with a young man. I know most people think that the mother is the prime character of the play, but that has to do with efficiency and dramaturgy, not, <laughs> and, not and, anything and, else. And the power of the actors. Eh? <laughs> well, <laughs> they were both admirable actors, but... Uh, I was dealing with a young man who would have, I feel, been a compelling object of conflict as a young American of his class, of whatever racial background, that uh, with the exception of the incident at the end of the play, and mm -hmm. with the exception, of course, of character depth, because Negro character is a reality. There is no such thing as saying that a Negro could be a white person if you just change the lines or something like this. This is a very arbitrary and superficial approach to, I think, Negro character. But, and taking this long way around to say mm -hmm. what you do, what you uh, to try and answer what you ask, there really is no profound problem. I started to write about this family as I knew them in the context of those realities which I remembered as being true for this particular given set of people. And at one point, it was just inevitable that a problem of some magnitude, which was racial, would intrude itself, because this is, as I said before, one of the realities of Negro life in America. But it was just as inevitable that for a large part of the play, mm -hmm. that they would be excluded. Because as Demi and I have remarked to one another many times, and I'm sure that Langston has in his own, uh, the duality of consciousness is so complete that it is perfectly true to say that Negroes do not sit around 24 hours a day thinking, I am a Negro. <laughs> you know, they really don't. I don't. I don't think he does or anybody else. And at the other hand, if you say the, the reverse, that is almost true. And this is part of the complexity that I think you're talking about, isn't it? Yes, it's a part of the complexity one's got to get at and deal with. It isn't just a matter... I, I agree with Lorraine completely. No, most of this... In great detail, but it's this, it's this which is interesting. You know, it's this which one has got to get at, because white white men in this country and Americans in this American Negroes in this country are really. I discovered this in Europe. Perhaps it was always very obvious, but it never occurred to me before. Are really are really the same people. You know, mm -hmm. they are um, the only people in the world who understand American white men. Are, are, are Negroes. Nobody. <laughs> I think that's profoundly true. I, I really, it I sounds really. romantic to say it aloud, but yeah, I have but a I feeling really of the core you, you, you make that point uh, several times very very trenchantly in Notes of a Native Son, as I remember, too, in yeah. some of the essays in it. Um, Langston Hughes, you have a large, continuing body of work, and uh, I wondered if you had felt, in, in the course of your own development as a writer, a change in your feeling of this duality as the conditions around you changed as the struggle for equality became more militant as you had uh, some progress and setbacks on the right and the, the status to some extent of, of the quote Negro writer unquote began to change. In other words, to what extent did the society around you change the kind of tension under which you wrote? Oh, I must say that I don't Notice any changes yet? <laughs> one, uh, one kind of problem after another comes to the fore mm. in different ways and in different sections of our country. And um, 
I happen to be uh, <clears throat> a writer who uh, travels a great deal because I read my poems in public quite a deal, you see. And almost every year I travel over most of the country, south and north, and uh, I do, of course, see appreciable changes in some um, areas of race relations, and I trust that my recent work reflects them to some extent. But by and large, it seems to me not really very different from when I was a child. The uh, There are still a great many places where you can't get a hamburger or a cup of coffee or you can't get a, uh, you can't sit on a bench in a railroad station or mm. something of this sort. And not just in the South, it, uh, uh, those problems exist in Washington, on the West Coast, and in Maine, you know. Mm. And um, uh, I am, of course, as, as everyone knows, primarily a, I guess you might even say a propaganda writer. My, my main material is, is the race problem, and uh, I have found it most exciting and interesting and intriguing to deal with it in writing, and uh, I haven't found uh, the problem of being a Negro um, in any sense uh, a hindrance to putting words on paper. They, it may be a hindrance sometimes to selling them, <laughs> or the material that one uses, the fact that one uses, or that I use the uh, problem material and uh, material that uh, is likely to often excite discussion or disagreement, uh, in some cases prevents its quick sale, you know? I mean, I know that, no doubt it's much easier to uh, sell a story uh, like Frank Yerby writes without the race problem in it, or uh, like, problem. yes, or, or as uh, Willard Motley, who also happens to be Negro, uh, uh, writes without accentuating the sharpness of our American race problem. Mm -hmm. uh, those writers are are much more commercial than than I or than than Miss Hansberry, I think even or uh, or James Baldwin, who uh, uh, to me seems to be one of the most racial of our writers, in spite of his uh, <laughs> analysis of himself otherwise on occasion. <laughs> Later for you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Emil Capuya, not necessarily speaking for Macmillan, but for what you have what you've observed in publishing as a whole, do you think uh, Langston Hughes' point has validity that uh, the degree of sharpness in which the racial problem is is is, um, is written about is that much of a deterrent to sales? Let's say in the book field, I, I, I wonder if there isn't a distinction between magazine writing and and book writing. Here. No, I think not. That actually, uh, all the three previous speakers, Miss Hansberry and Mr. Hughes and Jimmy Baldwin, had destroyed your opening gambit. You suggested mm -hmm. that uh, the tension that Jimmy alleged in his review was a real thing, and they've just told you it's not. And when they get to use of discretion, they find that that tension is one that every artist has to settle within himself, and being an ego doesn't make it any harder or any easier. From a publisher's point of view, well, a publisher is an, uh, from an editor's point of view, I should say. I don't mean to add those, that much glory to myself. From an editor's point of view, somebody who's... Um, professionally interested in buying and selling literary material, an artist, a writer, is two different people. First of all, he's uh, an artist, and as such, his claims are absolute. You know, nothing's too good for him. The wind bloweth where it listeth. You've got to pay him advances. And uh, he, can, he can even reflect a sort of charisma on his editor, you know, the way uh, Thomas Wolfe did on that fortunate man at Scribner's. But he has another... <laughs> 
But he has another personality, too. He's also a commodity. And as a commodity, he has no rights at all. He just has a market value only. So to come directly to your question, do I think that the questionable material that a Negro writer may find readiest to hand is questionable from the market point of view, I'd say that that is, must be an absolutely individual case. Mr. Hughes has suggested that uh, it's uh, been a stumbling block in his road to riches. But um, that wouldn't be the case. Obviously, uh, Jimmy's uh, business as a novelist is largely with that material. You can, you can see me later, too, Jimmy. No, I don't, and Miss Hansbury has had a, a great success, I think, partly because of what the great public that went to see that play thought of as exotic material. Uh, may, may I uh, say that from long years' experience with publishers, and many of them, I have about six now, uh, it has been my uh, feeling that if a publisher has one Negro writer on their list, or two at the most, they are not very likely to take another if the Negro writer is dealing in, in racial themes. Um, and it's not prejudice. It's simply that, uh, like they will tell you, well, we have a book, uh, a Chinese novel this year on our list. We don't want any more Chinese novels. Mm -hmm. Or we have two Negro writers, two Negro novels this year. Uh, I don't think we could, uh, could you wait another year for yours, you see? And um, the same thing is true in the theater. Uh, play after play after play by uh, Negro playwrights, or white playwrights for that matter, on Negro themes. Uh, goes around Broadway, and once in the blue moon, one of them gets taken. Once in ten blue moons, one of them is a hit, like Raisin in the Sun, you see? And the Broadway uh, producers will tell you, quite frankly, uh, uh, we don't think that's commercial. Uh, look, last year the long dream flopped, the cool world flopped. Mm -hmm. No more Negro plays. Uh, they're not commercial. We can't sell them. The people won't go to the box office. So, uh, if you want to make money out of writing, being a Negro writer, I mean quickly and easily... I would say become a Willard Motley, become a, a Frank Yerby. Back to you. <laughs> well, I don't take that as an interruption, Mr. Hughes. That's perfectly true. I, I don't think it's the whole truth uh, in relation to the way the question was originally posed by Nat. So he, um, wouldn't that be true if two plays about the Jewish East Side were to... Uh, yes, uh, yes, it, it certainly would be. I said it's not a matter really of racial prejudice. It's a matter of the kind of material oh, you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Like well, you I took to, it as rebuttal and I was You go to the grocery store and mm -hmm. you want some bread where you don't want cake. And mm -hmm. If you've got a loaf of bread, you're not going to buy another one that day. <laughs> oh, I don't... I, I wouldn't be so quick to exclude uh, the characterization, whether it is or isn't prejudice. I mean, there's so many different ways of saying the same thing. And it's, it would be more than wishful thinking to me to exclude prejudice as regards Negroes mm -hmm. with any... Uh, area of our fabric of life. I just don't think that's realistic. It's prejudice when you can't get an apartment. It's, I dare say it's probably prejudice when a skillful writer cannot publish because of some arbitrarily decided notion of what is or is not what they tell me all the time, parochial material, mm. highly narrow, uh, of narrow interest and so forth and so on. In a culture which has any pretensions toward uh, sophistication, and universal <coughs> interest in human beings, there should not be arbitrary uh, designations of kinds of material. A good book should find a publisher. I know this is utter mm -hmm. idealistic assertion, but this should be the reality. And the fact that we who are writers come to accept this concept of, yes, well, they, they did a Chinese play last year on Broadway, so you know they won't do another for the next 40 years, is, uh, I don't think, 
to treat the industry fairly itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't say it's fully true, but um, I think commercially speaking, and he brought up the problem of the right as a commodity, I think it is by and large true uh, what I have said. And I think um, that for the Negro writer to make a living, of course, is doubly hard due to the prejudice that Miss Hansberry has just spoken about in other areas relating to writing. For example, I, I told you that I'm a, a lecturer and I read my poems. I have been with uh, two or three of the top agencies. Uh, those agencies cannot, as a rule, book me at women's clubs. Women's clubs have teas. They do, they do not wish to mingle socially with their speaker, apparently, and they do not wish to invite their speaker's friends in whatever town he may be speaking mm-hmm. to the program because it's followed by a social event. Therefore, it's uh, a rare uh, occasion when I read my poems to a a woman's club. On occasion, I have, but rarely. Uh, if you want a job in the publishing industry, try and get it. How many editors of color can anyone name on any of our uh, New York publishing houses? Uh, you may find an occasional uh, girl secretary at the switchboard or, or a typist or a stockroom boy, but for the writer himself to get some sort of work related to his actual writing and publishing is well nigh impossible, I think. Um, until very recently, in the last few years, Negroes did not write for Hollywood. Nothing was really sold to Hollywood. That's the sort of new development. I've been writing for 30 years. I've had one Hollywood job in 30 years. And many white writers whom I know, less famous, with fewer books, some with almost no name at all, uh, have Hollywood swimming pools and a, and a house in uh, Palm Springs as well. And and fly to Europe all the time, and they grew up with me. Uh, uh, so you see, the prejudice operates in the field of making money from writing. Uh, it doesn't keep a writer from writing if you're colored. No, you can write all you want to, but just try and sell it. That's all. Mr. Kazan? Well, may I go back for a moment to the point which Mr. Baldwin began with, uh, this um, alleged um, conflict between the social and the artistic in American life. You know, words like social and artistic are easy to use, and I'm sure that if I were a Negro writer um, and had to go through the daily humiliations that certain of my friends go through, I would feel this way. But let me for a moment put it upon a purely theoretical plane where human history is not lived, but where art sometimes can be discussed. America itself has always been a social question. All that's good in American writing, American art, comes out of the profound investigation of social themes. It comes out of the profundity of the things. It's true of Moby Dick and of Leaves of Grass. It comes out of what I consider to be the driving force behind all things, which is human hunger and human desire. Only it's a question, of course, not of how much you desire or how bad you feel, but how artistically you can realize your desire. So that the thing we have to consider for a moment is well, two things. One is the current fashion to believe that art is somehow created apart from society uh, on the basis of purely individual will. Uh, as opposed to the marvelous books published in this country between, I would say, 1911 and 1934-35, many of which, like Faulkner's and Steinbeck's, Mr. Hughes's and other such books, are based upon very real and agonizing social problems. And I must say that in the centenary year of the Civil War, it's hard to forget that the Negro, in my belief anyway, is the central issue in American history, has been the central issue all along, has been the real crux of our history and of our aspirations as a people, 
And that therefore the question comes up as always, how deeply, how profoundly, how accurately do you recognize the social kind of drive in our literature right now? And one thing that's happening right now in middle class writing everywhere is what's happening to Negroes too. People don't have as many beefs as they think they have. They often have no real beefs. They are very often led by what I would consider purely arbitrary problems. And consequently, a good deal of the tremendous whiplash of hunger, uh, hunger in the widest sense, the deepest sense, has been forgotten here. I think, to put it very bluntly, in America, there cannot be any comfort between the so-called social and artistic impulse. That one must recognize that what we call art is the most profound realization of some social tendency in our art. And that wherever you don't have the social awareness, the social intelligence, then it seems to me you don't have art either. Now, if the Negro, let's look at it another way. The Negro has been not merely a writer, he's also been a character. And he's been, more or less, one of the most profound characters in American literature. I don't mean Uncle Tom either. I mean the characters in Faulkner, I mean the characters in many, even pre-antebellum Civil War novelists, who were always aware of the Negro as a force, as a human being, as a problem, as a challenge, as a lover, as many things. And one must not forget that this problem goes to the very essence of our life as a civilization. And that's why I'm so troubled when... Um, that Mr. Baldwin expresses for reasons that I can well imagine, but which I want for once to pretend that I don't understand, opens by bringing up this whole question of the, of the um, conflict between the social and the artistic. I think art is, is never created where one is too aware of this kind of conflict. And I don't also, also believe in conflicts that are realized. Once there's a conflict, I think there's the bypass and go on to a third, fourth, as such. And American life right now, I'm thinking, example, of Mr. Baldwin's Notes for Native Son, which for me in many ways is one of the most successful books, even though it's an essay book, of, of modern American writing. I recently put it at the head of a big anthology of temporary writing I've edited, and I, I've been struck and rereading it as I had to many times in manuscript and in proof by the power and the brilliancy and the vividness of it. You know what I would say about it? Yeah. I would say it's the Uncle Tom's Cabin of today. Well, <laughs> I have to like Uncle Tom's Cabin. I think it's a masterpiece. And the reason it's a masterpiece is because the broken glass of the 43 Harlem riot the miseries of personal family, all these things are social impulses that have been captured and realized as works of art. And the minute one tries to break away from this, tries to get away from this enormous passion, then one is lost. The other thing is that one must recognize that art itself was a word that people use, but that the ability to create it is something which is utterly God-given, accidental, capricious, you know. When I think, for example, to speak of something I know rather intimately well, when the Jewish immigrants from whom I come came to this country 50, 60 years ago, there's a whole horde of sweatshop poets and they were miserable people. They worked 18, 19 hours a day. They lived horrible lives. None of this poetry that I've seen, in English or in Yiddish or Hebrew, was any good at all. Lola Ridge. Lola Ridge didn't come out of this class at all. No. And then suddenly, <laughs> and then suddenly, <laughs> and then suddenly, in the last 15 years, we had a group of writers like Saul Bellow and Norman Mailer and Bernard Malibu and others who... With, with enormous uh, surprise to themselves, I think, they suddenly created five or six really good books, which are as fresh as anything can be. Now, one reason they've done this is because they've come to recognize their fate as being universal in some sense, and not merely accidental and parochial in that sense. I don't mean that they shouldn't write about parochial things, on the contrary, but they've come to recognize the universal in this. And I ask myself, what is the difference between those lovable, dear people 60 years ago with their awful sweatshop poetry and a writer who, to my mind, is as first class as Saul Bellow in one or two short things, I can only say that's a question of the, of, of the wielding together at a certain moment 
of, of all these impulses without for a moment forgetting that intelligence and social passion come into play here, you see. And one mustn't ever fall, it seems to me, into this problem of dividing the two. Otherwise, it becomes a problem in the economic history of the writer, it becomes a problem in the social history of the writer, it does not become a problem of art, as such, which is something very different entirely. Because otherwise, you see, uh, Mr. Frank Yerby can say very frankly, he took the easy way out, which he did, but that doesn't let him off in any way, you see. Yeah, he does have the swimming pool pulled out. He has a swimming pool, all right. <laughs> he doesn't even need an editor's job in New York. <laughs> Jim, isn't this yeah. pretty much the point you Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, excerpts uh, from a radio interview with uh, James Baldwin, Lorraine Hansberry, and Langston Hughes uh, during 1961, uh, discussing the uh, social role of the African-American writer. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. Welcome back, and uh, the sound of uh, D.D. Sharp 
with uh, I Do Love You, and we do love you here at the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast. We're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit on this uh, Sunday uh, afternoon, uh, Sunday afternoon, uh, September the 11th, uh, 2022. Right now we want to move into additional um, interview uh, with uh, Langston Hughes from 1963, uh, also in New York City. Let's listen in. When a man starts out with nothing... This is From the Vault, the Pacifica Radio Archives program that brings our history out of the vault and onto the radio. A young Pacifica Radio producer named Eve Corey sat down with Langston Hughes in the studios of WBAI Station in New York City in 1963 and had a lovely conversation with the esteemed author. There's a photo of their encounter on the front page of the Archives website at PacificaRadioArchives.org. Miss Corey heard that we had preserved the recording as part of our Preservation and Access project and called the Archives, the 1-800 number, to request a copy. Last December, we sent her a copy with our compliments in time for the holidays. Here is her message after hearing the interview for the first time in over 44 years. Hello, Brian DeShazer. This is Eve Corey. I received the CDs uh, of my interview with Langston Hughes, and it came just on Christmas Eve, and it was the, the best present that anyone could ever get. I just, my hands were shaking when I opened the envelope, and um, the minute I, I heard Mr. Hughes' voice, it took me right back to that WBAI studio and to that entire experience, and I recalled where I was nervous and didn't know what to say, and and the fact that he was just on top of everything, ready to fill in in an instant when I faltered. But generally, for a a new interviewer, I didn't do too badly. At any rate, I thank you most kindly. It was a gift beyond gifts. And now, here is Eve Corey's 1963 interview with one of the most influential writers of the 20th century, Mr. Langston Hughes. We kind of got you up this morning or this afternoon. It's 4 o'clock, and you say that you first get up at 4. Well, I work uh, at night, you see, and so sometimes I don't start writing until 12 or 1 o'clock because there's not much use trying to do anything that requires a great little concentration in New York in the daytime or in the early evening. Especially when carpenters come in. What did you, you just told me? A, oh, a yes, my bit. windows were being fixed, but... Um, that's only a minor interruption. One has usually many interruptions during the day. The phone rings 40 times. Strangers come by. Relatives you haven't seen in 10 years. They just drop in. Drop in time. <laughs> and you can't say no. So the result is that when peace and quiet settles down, it's usually around midnight, you see. Then I may try to, or usually do try, to do some serious writing. Mm. Sort of the quiet time for you. And yeah. then you... Spend the rest of the day doing what? When you when you have leisure time to. Use? Oh, I don't seem to have too much really. When I wake up, uh, which uh, is usually two or three, or sometimes even four o'clock, depending on whether I work through daylight or not. Uh, I read the mail, and the mail is oh maybe sometimes a two or three hour uh, task if one answers some of the letters immediately, mm. because there's a rather heavy mail, and now that I'm writing for the New York Post, I get 
quite a deal of fan mail. And what kind of letters do you get? On the whole, very cordial and usually nice letters commenting on some aspect with which the writer agrees. But uh, <laughs> I know there was some <laughs> there's always a, a few letters of disagreement and sometimes violent disagreement. And once in a while from people who uh, are not very pro-civil rights, uh, one gets angry and unsigned letters, you know... Uh, Ku Klux Klan type of letters. Really? Yeah. Are these postmarked New York or? Uh, most of them are. Most of them seem to be Brooklyn. <laughs> well, what do they disagree with? I mean, uh, I'm sure it's not your prose. Well, they <laughs> disagree with um, uh, decent housing for Negroes, for example. Uh, that Negroes stay in Harlem, or why should they live all over New York? They got Harlem. And you live in Harlem yourself. I live in Harlem, which I like very much, and, mm. and I stay there because I like it. But on the other hand, I would hate to be ghettoized against my will and and uh, uh new york is not a a ghetto the colored people in new york do live more or less all over the city now you see mm. so harlem is no longer a place where you have to live if you don't want to if you're colored but i happen to like it very much it's a very lively community and so i live there but many of my friends live in park west village in the 80s or down in the village mm. or in brooklyn or in the bronx you see and um, uh, there is of course housing difficulties still for colored peoples, but not any anywhere near what they used to be. Mm-hmm. You, uh, you originally came from Joplin, Missouri. Did you move directly to Harlem? Oh, or? no. I was just born in Joplin. I don't oh, even, I see. I don't even remember it. <laughs> I've lived so many places since then. Well, and you're, you're a native New Yorker, almost. Well, I've been here almost. more or less off and on for at least 25 years. But you would say your, your home. I, oh, yes. New York now. is my home. Worked as a seaman. And he went to West Africa and Europe, uh, which sounds quite fascinating, especially the West mm, Africa part. Yeah, I had a wonderful today. series of trips and uh, enjoyed them very much. And sometimes I wish I were a seaman again. <laughs> you get to travel. You uh, on on freight boats. I've never worked on passenger ships, but on freight boats they go rather leisurely, you know. And they stay in odd ports to which one would not otherwise be likely to. Uh, Visit, and Where? sometimes they stay for eight or ten days. Oh, uh, ports like Burutu up the Niger River, and Boma up the uh, Congo River on this African trip, you know. When was this? I mean, what, uh, well, this was way back in 1925, I believe. Quiet time. Quite a time ago, yeah. Mm. And and quiet, not quite what uh, West Africa is today. Well, no, I've been back several times, you know. In fact, I was in Africa twice, uh last year mm-hmm. in Nigeria, in uh, Ghana, in Uganda. And it is a very wonderful and interesting continent now with a great deal of uh, advancement being achieved by the newly liberated nations. Mm-hmm. Is that where you uh, edited the poems from Black Africa? Well, I collected a great many uh, poems and short stories from Africa. have been doing so over a period now of, of six or eight years and uh, brought out an anthology called An African Treasury of Poetry and Prose a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And now, this May, my collection of African poetry is coming out called Poems from Black Africa. This was the one you edited? Yes, I yeah. edited it, mm-hmm. and it contains the major poets writing in English and the major poets writing in French, but uh, translation difficulties are they are not insurmountable, but they take a lot of doing, and so the French poets are not as well represented as those from Nigeria and Ghana and 
the other English-speaking uh, African mm -hmm. countries. What about, uh, are there any uh, talents, shall we say, uh, poets, African poets, who write in uh, some of the various African languages? Yes, there are. And some of the poets are bilingual or even trilingual. Mm. I mean, for example, in Nigeria, most uh, people speak one of the native languages, Yoruba or Igbo, mm. and some of the writers write in Yoruba, and uh, most of them are educated in uh, English schools, you see, or I mean English uh, language schools. And English is the sort of lingua franca between the tribal peoples anyway. I mean, the Igbos and the Yorubas cannot understand one another except when they talk in English. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it is the common language. It's the language of the newspapers of Nigeria and of Ghana. And so most of the literary people use English, and sometimes they write in their own native tongues as well. How is the translation problem there, I mean, as far as putting the native dialect into English? Well, it's not great. There, there are so many people who speak both, lang mm -hmm. both tongues, you see. Does it kind of lose in the translation, though? <laughs> well, now, of course, I can't tell. Not, you not, don't know any of the... don't know uh, the African uh, languages, no. Mm -hmm. I see that uh, you have a number of books for children on the market, and... Uh, a book of jazz, first book of jazz. Uh, yes, I think that's perhaps the only history of jazz for children that's been written. There's been many excellent jazz books for adults, but I know of none for young mm -hmm. people. Nor do I, come to think of it. Also, first book of rhythms, which... Uh, do you uh, have these illustrated? Yes, or? they are illustrated, mm -hmm. and they're part of the uh, Franklin Watts first book series, a series designed to introduce young people, children, to subjects when they begin to be interested in them. Mm -hmm. There's some quite wonderful books. First book of stones, the first book of archaeology, and so on. And uh, I have written, so far, five books in that series. What uh, what started you on books for children? Well, also, I, was, I was asked to, uh, mm -hmm. if I would consider writing those particular books. And Somehow it, it, uh, it seems that it would be natural. Uh, Children, I think, would very much like to read the simple stories. They're, they're, there's a certain warmth about them that would appeal to children. Yes, as well a lot of the uh, high school youngsters seemingly are acquainted with my simple character. Just been published, I believe, something in common. Yes, which is a uh, selection of stories. Well, it's uh, derived from two previous collections of short stories of mine, and includes eleven new ones that have never been in book form before. The simple stories have been... Oh, yes, simple stories have been in book yeah. form, mm -hmm. but uh, none of the simple stories are here. These are the more or less straight uh, short stories that I've written over the years, and it includes um, one of my stories, which has been anthologized a great many times, and, uh, perhaps is my best-known short story. It's called A Good Job Gone. Mm -hmm. Well, that sounds like uh, something I'd like to hear. Would you <laughs> like to give us a little bit of that? No, I, that one is a little bit too long, I think, to read here. Um, it was originally published in Esquire years ago, but um, I would prefer uh, reading a, a shorter one uh, today, if I might. Shall I read it now? Yes, sure. Go right ahead. All right. The <laughs> first story in the book is called Thank You, Ma'am. She was a large woman with a large purse that had everything in it but a hammer and nails. It had a long strap, and she carried it slung across her shoulder. 
It was about eleven o'clock at night, dark, and she was walking alone when a boy ran up behind her and tried to snatch her purse. The strap broke with the single sudden tugs the boy gave it from behind, but the boy's weight and the weight of the purse combined caused him to lose his balance. Instead of taking off full blast as he had hoped, the boy fell on his back on the sidewalk and his legs flew up. The large woman simply turned around and kicked him right square in his blue-jeaned sitter. Then she reached down, picked the boy up by his shirt front, and shook him until his teeth rattled. After that, the woman said, Pick up my pocketbook, boy, and give it here. She held him tightly, but she bent down enough to permit him to stoop and pick up her purse. Then she said, Now ain't you ashamed of yourself? Firmly gripped by his shirt front, the boy said, Yes, am the woman said, What did you want to do it for? The boy said, I didn't aim to. She said, You a lie. By that time, two or three people passed, stopped, turned around on the street to look, and some stood watching. If I turn you loose, will you run? asked the woman. Yes, said the boy. Then I won't turn you loose, said the woman. She did not release him. Lady, I'm sorry, whispered the boy. Uh-huh. Your face is dirty. I got, got a great mind to wash your face. Ain't you got nobody home, boy, to tell you to wash your face? No, said the boy. Then it will get washed this evening, said the large woman, starting up the street, dragging the frightened boy behind her. He looked as if he were fourteen or fifteen, frail and willow wild in tennis shoes and blue jeans. The woman said, You ought to be my son. I would teach you right from wrong. Least I can do right now is to wash your face. Are you hungry? Gnome, said the being dragged boy. I just want you to turn me loose. Was I bothering you when I turned that corner? asked the woman. Gnome. But you put yourself in contact with me, said the woman. If you think that that contact is not going to last a while, you got another thought coming. When I get through with you, sir... You are going to remember Mrs. Luella Bates Washington Jones. Sweat popped out on the boy's face and he began to struggle. Mrs. Jones stopped, jerked him around in front of her, put a health Nelson around his neck and continued to drag him up the street. When she got to her door, she dragged the boy inside, down a hall and into a large kitchenette furnished room at the rear of the house. She switched on the light and left the door open. The boy could hear other roomers laughing and talking in the large house. Some of their doors were open, too, so he knew that he and the woman were not alone. The woman still had him by the neck in the middle of her room. She said, What's your name? Roger, answered the boy. Then, Roger, you go to that sink and wash your face, said the woman, whereupon she turned him loose at last. Roger looked at the door, looked at the woman, looked at the door, and went to the sink. Let the water run until it gets warm, she said. Here's a clean towel. You going to take me to jail, asked the boy, bending over the sink. Not with that face. I would not take you nowhere, said the woman. Here I am trying to get home to cook me a bite to eat, and you snatch my pocketbook. Maybe you ain't been to your supper either, late as it is. Have you? There's nobody home in my house, said the boy. Then we'll eat, said the woman. I believe you're hungry, or been hungry, to try to snatch my pocketbook. 
I want a pair of blue suede shoes, said the boy. Well, you didn't have to snatch my pocketbook to get some blue suede shoes, said Mrs. Luella Bates Washington Jones. You could have asked me. Ma'am, the water dripping from his face, the boy looked at her. There was a long pause, a very long pause. After he had dried his face and not knowing what else to do, dried it again, the boy turned around, wondering what next. The door was open. He could make a dash for it down the hall. He could run, 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 run. The woman was sitting on the daybed. After a while, she said, I were young once, and I wanted things I could not get. There was another long pause. The boy's mouth opened. Then he frowned, not knowing he frowned. The woman said, Uh-huh. You thought I was going to say, But, didn't you? You thought I was going to say, But I didn't snatch people's pocketbooks. Well, I wasn't going to say that. Pause. Silence. I have done things, too, which I would not tell you, son. Neither tell God if he didn't already know. Everybody's got something in common. So you sit on a while while I go and fix us something to eat. You might run that comb through your hair so you'll look presentable. In another corner of the room behind the screen was a gas plate and an ice box. Mrs. Jones got up and went behind the screen. The woman did not watch the boy to see if he was going to run now, nor did she watch her purse which he left behind her on the daybed. But the boy took care to sit on the far side of the room, away from the purse, where he thought she could easily see him out of the corner of her eye if she wanted to. He did not trust the woman not to trust him, and he did not want to be mistrusted now. Do you need somebody to go to the store, asked the boy, maybe to get some milk or something? I don't believe I do, said the woman, unless you just want sweet milk yourself. I was going to make cocoa out of this canned milk I got here. That will be fine, said the boy. She heated some lima beans and ham she had in the icebox, made the cocoa, and set the table. The woman did not ask the boy anything about where he lived or his folks or anything else that would embarrass him. Instead, as they ate, she told him about her job in a hotel beauty shop that stayed open late at night, what the work was like, and how all kinds of women came in and out. Blondes, redheads, and Spanish. Then she cut him a half of her ten-cent cake. Eat some more, son, she said. When they were finished eating, she got up and said, Now here, take this ten dollars and buy yourself some blue suede shoes. And next time, do not make the mistake of latching on to my pocketbook nor nobody else's, because shoes got by devilish ways will burn your feet. I got to get my rest now. But from here on in, son, I hope you will behave yourself. She led him down the hall to the front door and opened it. Good night. Behave yourself, boy, she said, looking out into the street as he went down the steps. The boy wanted to say something other than thank you, ma'am, to Mrs. Luella Bates Washington Jones. But although his lips moved, he couldn't even say that as he turned at the foot of the barren stoop and looked up at the large woman in the doorway. Then she shut the door. That is the end. <laughs> oh, we can't end it here. <laughs> would you try one more for us, perhaps? That would well, be let's see if I can find another short one. Mm -hmm. um, this, um, both of these stories are stories I've written within the last 
two years. Uh, there was quite a long period when I didn't write short stories. I suppose I was so busy working on plays and longer kinds of creative things that the short story form didn't have much time left for it, you see. Mm-hmm. But um, of late, I've written uh, perhaps a half a dozen short stories in the last two years, and this one is called Sorrow for a Midget. It's another story uh, laid in Harlem, and... Uh, there are 37 stories in all in this. 37 stories in, in the book, yes, mm-hmm. and a number of them are longer than these that I'm, mm-hmm. I'm reading now. Uh, this one is uh, told through the eyes of a hospital worker, and you uh, know we've all been reading about the hospital problems of low wages and poor staffs, you know. So this uh, young man was not really uh, dedicated to his work, but uh, he got this job in the hospital, and so he tells this story. No grown man works in a hospital if he can help it. The pay is too low. But I was broke. Jobs hard to find, and the employment office sent me there that winter, right in the middle of Harlem. Work wasn't hard, just cleaning up the wards, serving meals off a rolling table, bullying around, pushing a mop. I didn't mind. I got plenty of rest. Got plenty to eat, too. It was a little special kind of hospital. There was three private rooms on my floor, and in one of them was a female midget. Miss Midget. A little lady who looked like a dried-up child to me. But they told me so that I wouldn't get scared of her that she was a midget. She had a pocketbook bigger than she was. It laid on a chair beside her bed. Generous, too. Nice, that little midget lady. She gave me a tip the first day I was there. But she was dying. The nurses told me Countess Midget was booked to die. And I'd never seen nobody die. Anyway, I hung around her. It was profitable. Take care of me good, she said. I pay as I go. I always did know how to get service. She opened her big fat pocketbook as big as she was and showed me a thick wad of bills. This gets it any time, anywhere, she said. It got it with me all right. I stuck by. Tips count up. That's how I know so much about what happened in them few days she was in that hospital room. Game as she could be, but booked to die. Not even penicillin can save her, the day nurse said. Not her. That was when penicillin was new. Of course, the undertakers that year was all complaining about penicillin. They used to come to the hospital looking for corpses. Business is bad, one undertaker told me. People don't die like they used to since this penicillin come in. Uh Uh-uh. Springtime in the old days, you could always count on plenty of folks dying of pneumonia and such, going outdoors catching cold before it was warm enough and all. Funerals every other day we used to have then. Not no more. The doctors stick them with penicillin now, and they get well. Damn if they don't. Penicillin is bad for morticians. But that midget did not have pneumonia, neither a cold. She had went without an operation she needed too long. Now, operations could do her no good. And what they put in the needle for her arm was not penicillin. It was something that did her no good either. Just eased down the pain. It were kept locked up so young orderlies like me would not steal it and sell it to junkies. The nurses would not even tell me where it was locked up at. 
You know, I did not look too straight when I come in that hospital. They were short-handed, not having much help, so they would hire almost anybody for an artery in a hospital in Harlem, even me. So I got the job. Right off, after that first day, I loved that midget. I said, little bitch, you're a game, kitty. I admire your spunk. Midget said, I dig this hospital jive. Them nurses ain't understandable. Nice, but don't understand. You're the only one in here, boy, I would ask to do me a favor. Fine, my son. You look like a baby to me, midget. Where and when on earth did you get a son, I asked. Don't worry about that, said Countess Midget. I got him, and he's mine. I want him right now. He do not know I am in here sick. If he did, he would come, even were he ashamed of the way he looked. You find my son. She gave me twenty bucks for subway fare and taxi to go looking. I went and searched and found her son. Just like she had said he might be, he were ashamed to come to the hospital. He was not doing so well. Fact is, her son was ragged as a buzzard, feeding on a Lenox Avenue carcass. But when I told him his mama was sick in the Maggie Butler Pavilion of the Sadie Henderson Hospital, he come. He got right up out of bed and left his girlfriend and come. My mama has not called me for a long, long time, he said. If she calls me now, like this boy says, he told his girl, wild horses could not hold me. Baby, I'm going to see my mama, he said. I did not know you even had a mama, whined the sleepy old broad in the bed, looking as if she did not much care. Lots of things you do not know about this, Joe, said the cat to the broad. He got up and dressed and went with me quick. That little bitty woman, I asked him in the street, is she your mama? Damn right she's my mama, said the guy who was near six feet tall, big, heavy set black and ragged no warm coat on i thought i was beat but he was the most i could tell he had been gone to the dogs long gone still he was a young man from him i took a lesson i will never get this far down i said to myself no not ever get this far down and out is she very low sick he asked about his mama real sick man i don't know i said she is sunk way down in bed, and the sign on the door says, No visitors. Then how am I going to get in? Relatives is not visitors, I said. Besides, I know the nurses. Right now is not even visiting hours. Too early. But come with me. You'll get in. I felt sorry for a guy with a mama who was a midget who was dying in the hospital. A midget laying dying. Had she been my mama, I guess I would have wanted to be there, though, in spite of the fact she was a midget. I couldn't help wondering how could she be so small and have this great big son. Who was his papa? And how could his papa have had her? Well, anyhow, I took him in to see the little countess in that big high hospital bed, so dark and small, in that white, white room, in that white bed. They had just given his mama a needle, so she were not right bright. But when she saw her son, her little old wrinkled face lighted up. Her little old tiny matchstick arms went almost around his neck. And she hollered, my baby, real loud. My precious baby son, my son. Mama, he almost cried. 
I have not been a good son to you. You have been my only son, she said. The nurse hit me. Let's get out of here and leave him alone. So the nurse and I went out and left him alone. We left him alone for a long time until he left. That afternoon, that midget died. Her son couldn't hardly have more than gotten back home when I had to go after him again. I asked him on the way back to the hospital this time, was he honest to God, sure enough, her son? He shook his head, no. That is when I felt most sorry for that midget when I heard him say no. He explained to me that he was just a took-in son, one she had sort of adopted when he was near about a baby, because he had no father and no mother, and she had no son. But she wanted people to think she had a son. She was just his midget mama, that's all. He never had no real mama that he knew. But this little tiny midget raised him as best she could. Being mostly off in sideshows and carnivals the biggest part of the time, she boarded him out somewhere in school in the country. When he got teenage and come back to Harlem, he went right straight to the dogs. But she loved him, and he loved her. When he found out about 5.30 p.m. that afternoon that she had died, that big old ragged, no-good, make-believe son of hers cried like a child. Oh, don't close the book now. Can we have another sh- little short Well, one? I don't <laughs> have any more real, real short ones. The others are rather long, I think, too. Wonderful. You know, Something in Common sounds like a great title for a play as well. And you've written some wonderful plays, uh, Tambourines to Glory. Yes. Now, uh, um, Simply Heavenly, certainly. Simply Heavenly had quite a little run on Broadway, you know. Mm-hmm. Soul Gone Home. And the lyrics for Street Scene. <laughs> Which is going to be done. Which is uh, being done now at the now, Lincoln, Center, Lincoln Center as a part of the opera repertory, yes. Have you thought of doing something with something in common, or is it too early yet? Mm, to tell the truth, I hadn't thought of Because uh, it sounds... Uh, of uh, using these stories for plays. Uh, they do have a rather, I guess what you might call a common theme running through a number of them, and they have attempted, something in common. Yes, it's <laughs> to show that, <laughs> that practically all human beings, white, colored, whatever race they may be, or whatever social stratification they may come from, uh, have something in common. I'd like to ask something about uh, the fight for freedom, which is... Uh, has the won story a, of the NAACP. Yes, which mm-hmm. has won a great deal of acclaim. This is out now. It's out, and it's been out for several months, and it's about a very timely subject. It's about the integration struggle and the background to the current uh, problems in the South, and it uh, encompasses really the whole history of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, which is the largest and leading Negro organization in the country, or Negro and White, it's really interracial Mm -hmm, organization, uh, attempting to straighten out our democratic problems in reference to race. And, of course, as you know, very great progress has been made in the last decade. Uh, on the legal front, almost all of this progress has been due to the National Association, the NEACP, because it was their lawyers, their legal staff, their planning that uh, brought about the Supreme Court decisions, you know, that opened up these schools to all, that 
brought about the uh, end of restrictive covenants mm -hmm. again through legal decisions. And uh, many people do not realize that much of this progress in this area of civil rights benefits not only the Negro people, but benefits many other minorities as well. For example, in housing, uh, right here in, in New York, in Brooklyn, in fact, uh, there were housing cases where Armenian families were not permitted to rent apartments in certain localities. Even Italians sometimes, uh, there are neighborhoods that refused to rent or sell to them. And the Jewish people, of course, have had many problems in that regard, uh, not so much in the New York area as in Florida and some parts of our, of our south. Uh, neighborhoods have signs that I've seen myself restricted. And those signs were not... In Florida. Yes, they were not against mm -hmm. Negroes. You see uh, many signs colored, not admitted and so on in the mm -hmm. South, but the restricted signs, when I first saw them, I said, oh, what do they mean? Mm -hmm. And they said, oh, that means uh, no Jewish people mm -hmm. here. And, of course, when the uh, Supreme Court ruled such housing covenants and, and plans uh, to restrict people to ghetto areas were illegal, it was a victory for many other peoples than the Negroes, you know? Mm -hmm. People who took part in the legal planning, the lynching investigations uh, back in the old days when we had around 1918, 1920, almost a lynching a week. Mm -hmm. uh, there was one year in which there were, were, were more than uh, 52 lynchings, one every week. And uh, many of the lynchings were by burnings. Uh, young people nowadays uh, who didn't live through that period don't remember that uh, people were burned at the stake in the public square without trial. Human barbecues, really, you know? Uh, and so when you realize the kind of savagery that went on uh, 25 or 30 years ago, you can see that we have at least made some progress that uh, they don't uh, conduct lynchings anymore, at least not openly. Mississippi <laughs> or Texas, and, and the uh, police dogs may tear your trousers off, but they don't well, they, chew they, you they, to death. They get, a, they get a little skin every once in yes, a while. Yes, they do. Yes. You did win the Spring on Medal for this, didn't you? Uh, well, not specifically for that book. The Spingarn Medal is given for, I guess, for one's overall achievement, but I happened to receive it mm -hmm. during the year in which that book was about to appear. That was recently, wasn't it? Uh, uh, was about it? Uh, two years ago, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. The book has been out now perhaps almost a year. Are you uh, are you an officer with the NAACP? Oh, no, I'm not. I'm not at all. Uh, it... Uh, while commissioned uh, uh -huh. book, I was asked to to write it, and I very much uh, enjoyed writing it in a way. I mean, uh, I acquired much information myself that I did not have before, but I must say it was the most difficult uh, literary job that I've ever done, and that it required so much research and so much reading and and uh, so much careful checking. It's a, it's a complete it's a evaluation. Of yes, it. and it's a factual book, you see. Mm -hmm. And I... Uh, I'm primarily really a poet and a fiction writer, and it's much easier to make something up out of your own head than it is to do a lot of research and have to work that hard to put it together. <laughs> so aside from uh, uh, making things up out of your own head, uh, your characters certainly uh, bear a tremendous amount of uh, resemblance to a lot of people I have seen. <laughs> I just wonder, uh, where, do you, where do you find them? Well, they're not... Uh, copies of exact people, but they're composites oftentimes of people that I have known myself or certainly know about or 
Sometimes I use uh, stories that I've heard as a basis for a fiction story, but changing and usually extending and elaborating on, on the tale as I've heard it, you know? Mm. Well, I really can't wait to finish the uh, Something in Common, and uh, it is, it's now on... It's now in paperback and hardcover mm -hmm. and available, I believe, in most of the paperback, large paperback shops or bookshops around about. And uh, it has just recently come out, so I have not seen any reviews yet. I don't know what the critics will say about it, but I, like wow. all authors, I hope they'll say something good. Well, thank you very, very much. Uh, perhaps we'll hear some simple stories at another time. Oh, I, I, I'd be delighted sometime to read some of them, too. Thank you very much. Thank huh? you. That was a 1963 conversation between author Langston Hughes and Pacifica producer Eve Corey, right here on From the Vault. And that does it for this week's program. From the Vault is produced by the Pacifica Radio Archives and presented as part of the Pacifica Radio Archives Preservation and Access Project. Welcome back, and uh, that was um, a focus on uh, the legendary uh, Langston Hughes uh, from 1963, an interview uh, that was conducted uh, at uh, WPAI radio station in New York City uh, during that year. And uh, we're going to take a uh, break, and uh, we'll be back uh, with our concluding segment of our program. Oh, 
Detroit's own uh, John Lee Hooker uh, with the tune and title, You Lost a Good Man. And uh, right now we want to move into the African Center for Disease Control and Prevention briefing uh, that uh, was held. That is plus 251-94-550-2310. But uh, we can also talk live and also take your questions through the question and answer section. Now, today we do have interpretation in French, so you can select the language of your choice from um, the line below uh, on this platform. It is now time for us to hand over to Dr. Which we will then go into the question and answer section. Dr. Ogwell, it's over to you. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, um, Wayne. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're joining us from. The first day of September 2022, I would like to share with you updates on um, uh, the health emergencies here on the continent, and we will start uh, with COVID-19 situation here in Africa. To date, we have documented 12,044,535 cases of COVID-19 since the beginning of the pandemic, and this accounts for 3% of the total number of COVID cases globally. Recoveries, we have documented 11.4 million uh, people, and this accounts for 95% of the cases that we have reported here in Africa. Unfortunately, we have lost 255,577 people, which gives us a cumulative case fatality rate here in Africa of 2.1%, and the deaths that we have documented accounts for 4.1% of the total number of deaths due to COVID-19 that have been reported globally. Looking at the burden of uh, disease by country, the following five countries account for 61% of all the cases that have been reported on the continent of Africa. South Africa with 33%, Morocco 11%, Tunisia 9%, and Egypt and Libya each with 4% 
of the cases. When we look at um, this week, 41 countries are reporting a case fatality rate that is higher than one uh, than the global average of 1.1%. So out of the 55 member states of the Africa Union, 41 are reporting case fatality rate that is higher than the global average. Uh, the same two countries, Somalia and uh, South and uh, Sudan, are still reporting a case fatality rate of higher than 5%. It is also important to note that um, no new countries have reported uh, a fourth wave. Um, and when we look at um, uh, the fifth wave, again, no new countries have experienced that. Uh, the same goes for the sixth wave. Uh, the same five countries have experienced a sixth wave, and no new countries have uh, experienced a sixth wave. When we look at the variants of concern, we see that um, there is no new change in the variants that have been reported so far here on the continent of Africa. Um, and um, when we look at... Um, uh, the sub-lineages, one additional country, that is Sudan, is reporting Omicron BA2 sub-lineage, making the number of countries on the continent that are reporting this particular sub-lineage to be uh, 30 in number. For the rest of the um, variants and sub-lineages, there is no change from what we shared uh, during last week and our teams across the continent. Our reference laboratories continue uh, to monitor um, the situation of variants and sublineages through uh, regular um, uh, sequencing of samples. Looking at the one-week analysis, epidemiological week 34, which is the 22nd to the 28th of August, when we are comparing with epi week 33, the situation is as follows. New cases, we have documented a total of 7,167 new cases, which is a 9% decrease from AP Week 33. Looking at these proportions by region, we see the northern region accounting for 32%, southern region 31%, western region 20%, eastern region 12%, and central region 5% of these 7,167 new cases that have been documented during AP Week 34. When we look at numbers, the following five countries are reporting the highest numbers of the new cases during AP Week 34. Um, and these are South Africa with 1,627, Tunisia with 1,394, Nigeria 436, Morocco 331, Zambia 312. When we look at the data um, in terms of uh, incidence per million population, the following countries um, are the top five. Seychelles with 171 cases, um, new cases per million population. Tunisia 16. Sao Tome and Principe, 11, Comoros, 8, and the Gambia, 6. 
During this same week, um, a total of 38 new deaths were reported in Africa, which is a 3% increase compared to AP Week 33. When we look at the trend over the last four weeks, and that is from the 1st to the 28th of August 2022, the number of new cases, we saw an overall average decrease by 24% across uh, Africa. And when we look at that same period by region, we see a 7% increase in eastern uh, region, 31% decrease in central region, 29% decrease in the northern region, 16% decrease in the southern region, and a 3% decrease in the western region for um, this four-week period from the 1st to the 28th of August. 2022. When we look at that data by the most populous countries on the continent, um, we see a seven percent, we see a seven percent average increase in the DRC, a six percent increase in Nigeria, eighteen percent decrease in Ethiopia, sixteen percent decrease in Kenya, and eleven percent decrease in South Africa, while in Egypt there was no significant change. The same period, when we look at the number of deaths, we see that we documented an average um, decrease of 12% in the number of new deaths on the continent during this four-week period. When we look at it by region, 68% increase in the southern um, Africa region, these are the number of new deaths during this four-week period, 67% increase in Eastern Africa region, 18% increase in the Northern Africa region, 17% decrease in the Central Africa region, while 4% decrease in Western Africa region. The same number of deaths when we look at uh, from the perspective of the most populous countries in Africa, South Africa, a 100% decrease, meaning there were no new deaths documented during the time. Kenya, the same, 100% decrease. The DRC, a 48% decrease. Ethiopia, 83% decrease. While Egypt and Nigeria, there was no change from the previous uh, four-week period. Let's look at the testing um, capacity and uh, <clears throat> feedback from the continent. To date, we have over 122 million COVID tests having been done um, in Africa throughout the 55 member states since the pandemic started. Over 227,000 new tests were reported for the AP Week 34, which is a 44% decrease from the previous week when we had um, over 405,000 tests uh, being reported during AP Week 33. So during this AP Week 34, the positivity rate is at an average of 3%, while the test per case ratio is at 32. This uh, gives us an increase by 63% in the positivity rate um, and a decrease 
by of 38% in the test per case ratio when we compare with the previous week. One member state is still reporting a test positivity rate that is higher than 12% during AP week 34. In vaccinations for COVID-19, to date, 945 million COVID-19 vaccine doses have been supplied to uh, the African continent. When we look at the total number of uh, uh, doses that have been administered, we see we stand at 677 million, which corresponds with 71% of the total uh, supply of COVID-19 vaccines on the continent. Our coverage um, is um, 22.1% of the total population being fully vaccinated, um, while 2.7% um, have been uh, boosted. When we look at um, the trend in uh, the number of countries, the top 10 uh, of our member states that have vaccinated more than 40% of their total population, we see that Seychelles has increased over the last one week to be at 81.5%. Rwanda has increased to be at 76.9%. And Sao Tome and Principe has also increased to be at 44.9%. But the top 10 countries remain the same as we saw during last week's briefing. In terms of supply, under the AVAT um, initiative, as of the 30th of August, 81,413,500 Johnson & Johnson doses had been delivered um, to 35 African, uh, member, African Union member states. And the division of these 35 uh, countries, what these 35 countries have received of the 81 million doses is as follows. 56 million came through the Africa Union um, mechanism where member states themselves have purchased uh, these COVID-19 doses. 17.9 million um, was through the Saving Lives and Livelihoods Initiative supported by MasterCard Foundation to purchase these 17.9 million um, doses of COVID-19 vaccines, while the U.S. government has supported this uh, initiative through AVAT uh, by 7.3 million doses uh, of COVID-19 uh, vaccines. It is important to note here that um, uh, we continue to deliver new um, uh, vaccine uh, doses to member states uh, as we expand the vaccination process uh, within countries through the Saving Lives and Livelihoods Initiative uh, that is currently underway in uh, many of these countries. And to give you just a little bit of detail uh, in terms of where we are with um, the Saving Lives and Livelihoods uh, Initiative, one is to confirm that um, currently um, MasterCard Foundation remains um, our, big, our uh, biggest partner in the Saving Lives and Livelihoods Initiative, but we have others who have come on board and are supporting uh, this particular initiative, including the Rockefeller Foundation, um, the Packard Foundation, uh, the AFD of France, that's their, their development arm, um, as well as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and COICA, 
from the Republic of Korea are contributing to expanding the Saving Lives and uh, Livelihoods Initiative as we aim for reaching 70% of Africa's population being fully vaccinated. So under the Saving Lives and Livelihoods Initiative, as of this week, 49 of our 55 uh, member states are participating. Uh, We have initiated uh, activities with 49 of our member states. 37 um, have their plans uh, completed and approved, and we are going through the stages now of uh, uh, starting implementation. Out of these 37, six are currently undergoing active implementation, and these include Ethiopia, Kenya, Lesotho, Namibia, Nigeria, and Rwanda. Within this week, we are going to launch in four more countries, and that is Comoros, uh, the DRC, Tanzania, and Uganda. By the end of this month, we will have added an additional seven countries, being Burkina Faso, Djibouti, Gabon, Malawi, Sierra Leone, Togo, and Zambia. It is important to note that um, these launches at country level are um, giving us very good feedback because we see the number of doses within those countries that are participating, the number of uh, doses being uh, uh, used up is increasing, the number of the population that are being fully vaccinated is also increasing, and as we onboard more and more countries, we look forward uh, to that 20.1% increasing to a more decent number closer and closer to our target of 70. Now let's look at other public health um, uh, threats on the continent. Today I would like to share with you eight significant outbreaks that we are currently dealing with on the continent of Africa. You will see that the numbers have increased. Um, Significant ones were five last week and now we have uh, eight. Let me start with monkeypox. Since the last briefing, we have on the continent of Africa documented 656 new cases, including 24 that are confirmed and 632 that are suspected. And unfortunately, we have also documented 19, that is one nine new deaths, giving us a case fatality rate for this week of 2.9%. The countries affected Um, um, during uh, this past week include the DRC, Morocco, Nigeria, and South Africa. However, the numbers, the new new cases, when compared to the previous week, we are seeing a 50% decrease in the number of new confirmed cases, um, and um, we are looking forward to that decrease being sustained over the coming weeks. During this um, last week, the, num- the countries that are reporting new cases of uh, monkeypox, DRC has reported 558 new suspected cases and 17 new deaths. Morocco, two new confirmed cases, but no deaths. Nigeria, 95 new cases, including 25- 21 that are confirmed and um, uh, 74 uh, that are suspected. We, they have also documented two new deaths, giving us a case fatality rate of 2.1% during that period. 
while South Africa has uh, also documented one new confirmed case and no deaths. Cumulatively, therefore, from the beginning of this year, 2022, we have documented 4,107 cases of monkeypox, which includes 483 confirmed and 3,624 suspected cases, 124 deaths, giving us a cumulative case fatality rate of 3% in 11 of our member states here in Africa. In terms of support, we continue to provide uh, capacity building, test kits, um, and um, uh, clinical management um, uh, training to all the affected member states. And um, we continue to work with uh, uh, within our international systems uh, to secure more laboratory test kits, um, as well as discussions on uh, um, vaccines continues, but none has yet to come uh, to Africa. The second outbreak I would like to share is wild polio here on the continent. Um, in the previous week, um, we saw last week that one new case and no deaths of wild polio type 1 was reported in Mozambique. Um, and when we look at the cumulative uh, numbers since the beginning of uh, this new outbreak of wild polio here in Africa, we now have six confirmed cases of um, um, wild polio type 1, and no deaths have been reported from the two member states that are reporting the six cases, and that is Malawi reporting one, and Mozambique reporting five cases so far. We ha are working with uh, both governments uh, of Mozambique and Malawi um, to uh, expand vaccination um, throughout the affected areas so as to limit the possibilities of uh, spillover um, infection as a result of wild polio type 1. We continue to build capacity as well across the continent uh, for their affected countries as well as their neighbors so that our surveillance mechanism is working well um, and also our clinical management uh, is um, um, optimal. The third outbreak I would like to share today is Ebola virus disease in the DRC. Since the last brief, no new cases and no new deaths of Ebola virus disease have been reported from the DRC. And cumulatively, we still have that one confirmed case and that one death, um, uh, which resulted in death that was reported from the Beni district in North Kivu province of the DRC. No new cases. After this one case uh, was identified and died, there's no new case that has been re uh, reported. We have deployed our experts to um, uh, North Kivu province uh, in collaboration with the government uh, of the DRC, and we continue to provide support uh, in trying to understand um, uh, how uh, the cycles uh, are actually being uh, facilitated, where the reservoir may be, and uh, this will enable us to understand um, uh, the new outbreak and therefore uh, help us to prepare better and prevent uh, future outbreaks of Ebola virus disease. The third um, outbreak is uh, a multi-country yellow fever outbreak. Since <clears throat> the last time that uh, we spoke about um, uh, yellow fever, Cameroon and Central Africa Republic have reported um, 
cases of yellow fever as follows. Cameroon has reported seven confirmed cases, but no deaths, while the Central African Republic has reported nine confirmed uh, cases and no deaths. Cumulatively, therefore, 33 confirmed cases um, uh, and no deaths have been reported from Cameroon and the Central African Republic um, uh, from the beginning of uh, the latest uh, outbreak of yellow fever here on the continent. We are supporting both CAR, that is Central African Republic, and um, uh, Cameroon in um, uh, conducting vaccination campaigns uh, in the affected areas so as to limit uh, the possibility of serious illness uh, uh, and death uh, amongst those uh, populations. We are recommending to our member states to leverage the systems um, that um, and the infrastructure we've been using for COVID-19 to reach uh, the affected uh, populations and uh, provide them with the necessary uh, support for vaccination as well as um, a sharing of appropriate information, how they can be able to protect themselves uh, from um, uh, this yellow fever outbreak. The fifth is anthrax in Uganda. Twelve new cases, including one confirmed and 11 suspected, but no deaths have been reported from Uganda since the last brief. And cumulatively, we have seen 30 cases, including six confirmed, 24 suspected, two deaths, giving us a 6.6% cumulative case fatality rate, have been reported from three districts in Uganda. Uh, the government there continues to actively uh, conduct uh, searches for any contacts uh, and cases, um, including providing information to the populations that are affected uh, so as to limit the possibility of uh, this uh, outbreak spreading uh, any, any, any further than it, uh, it currently uh, has. We are also supporting the government to train uh, clinicians uh, so that they can be able to handle uh, whenever symptoms are uh, expressed, uh, even before a laboratory confirmation, they can be able to handle uh, such suspected cases in a, a professional way uh, that limits um, any spread of uh, anthrax in the country and beyond. The sixth is a multi-country Lassa fever outbreak. Since the last briefing, 93 new cases, including five confirmed and 88 uh, suspected, but no new deaths uh, have been documented, have been reported from Nigeria, and this is a 52% decrease from the number of new cases that we uh, reported here in the last brief. Cumulatively, though, uh, 7,442 cases, uh, including 955 confirmed and uh, 6,487 suspected, with 194 deaths, giving us a case fatality rate of 2.6%. Uh, have been reported during this year from seven of our member states here on the continent. We continue to support the affected countries with test kits um, and capacity building uh, for management of uh, Lassa fever. The eighth outbreak I would like to share is cholera. Since the last brief, 3,925 new cases and 58 deaths, giving us a case fatality rate for this week of 1.4%, with 
have been reported from seven of our member states. This is a very large increase from last time, uh, and it is over a 100% increase um, when we look at the the number of new cases that we we saw uh, during last week. The breakdown for this um, quite significant increase in um, uh, the number of cases of uh, cholera on the continent are as follows. Cameroon, 189 new cases, including four confirmed and 185 suspected, seven new deaths giving a 3.7% case fatality rate for this week in Cameroon. Malawi, 718, that is 718 new confirmed cases and 24 new deaths, giving us a case fatality rate of 2.9%. Mozambique, 561 new suspected cases, no deaths. Nigeria, 1,271 new suspected cases, 17 new deaths, giving us a case fatality rate for this week of 1.8% in Nigeria. Somalia, 1,035 new cases, including 33 confirmed and 1,002 suspected, 7 new deaths, giving us a case fatality rate of 0.7%. South Sudan, 2 new cases, including 1 confirmed and 1 suspected, and no deaths. DRC, 149 new suspected cases, 3 new deaths, giving us a case fatality rate of 2%. And when we look at the cumulative figures since the beginning of the year, 38,617 cases, including 3,911 that are confirmed, while 34,706 are suspected, uh, 562 deaths, giving us a case fatality rate during this um, um, uh, period of since the beginning of the year, of uh, 1.5% reported from 13 um, member states of the African Union. We are working with all affected um, uh, countries uh, to ensure that um, um, uh, appropriate messages are being passed to the the public for prevention and those who are um, affected are getting the appropriate uh, treatment. And then our health workers are getting the appropriate um, capacity building uh, and tools for them to be able to work uh, effectively. The final significant outbreak that I would like to report on is measles. Since the last briefing, 9,293 new cases uh, with 676 new deaths have been reported, giving a case fatality rate for this week of 7.3%. These New cases have been reported from six of our member states, and this represents a 38% decrease in the number of new cases compared to the last update that we gave during last week. These six countries are Cameroon with 104 new cases, Central African Republic, uh, 37 new cases, DRC, 3,327, um, with 37 new deaths, Kenya, six new cases, no deaths, Senegal, 84 new cases, no deaths, and Zimbabwe, um, reporting 5,735 new cases and 639 uh, new deaths. For measles from the beginning of this year, 
we have cumulatively documented 178,465 uh, cases, including 28,927 that are confirmed, while 149,000 are suspected, 2,218 deaths, giving us a cumulative case fatality rate of 1.2%, reported from 24 of our member states here on the continent for this year. We continue to work with um, our member states in uh, providing opportunities for um, increased vaccination um, as well as capacity building for our member states um, uh, to ensure that uh, there is uh, optimal care being given to those who are affected. I would like to share um, two uh, events that are coming up. Well, one event that is coming up and one announcement that has just been made uh, recently, which is of significance to our work. On the 6th, 7th, and 8th of September, this is um, uh, next week, we are hosting here in Addis Ababa um, a meeting of um, extended program of immunization managers from our African Union member states. And what we intend uh, is for this meeting to contribute to uh, the increase in vaccination rates at country level. We would like to take stock of the progress that we have made in uh, COVID-19 vaccination. We would like to share lessons from different countries depending on the challenges they are facing, the successes that they have uh, achieved, the methodologies they are using. And we would also like very much to formulate uh, strategic shifts in priority actions so that we can be able to reach that 70% as soon as is possible. We are looking forward to uh, the leadership of the continent being there uh, to speak to our uh, managers of the extended programs of immunization from uh, African countries. The second is um, to... Uh, really share our support with um, the agreement that Aspen and the Serum Institute of India signed yesterday, uh, where we have four routine uh, vaccines uh, that are going to be manufactured by Aspen uh, in South Africa for the African market. We are very supportive of these because it contributes directly to our ambition of manufacturing uh, at least 60% of our human vaccines by 2040. It contributes to um, Africa's new public health order where we are securing our own supplies. And it also very much um, is in line with the call by our heads of states uh, since May that um, at least 30% of the human vaccines that we are using on the continent uh, needs to come from African manufacturers. So we congratulate Aspen and the Serum Institute of India for um, uh, penning that particular agreement uh, that we are looking forward to changing the way in which we access uh, human vaccine, routine human vaccines here on the continent in the months and years uh, to come. So, Wayne, this is what I wanted to share for today and uh, happy to take questions. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ahmed. <clears throat> and uh, we move straight into our question and answer section. The first question that we have today is from Judith Akolo, who is with the Kenya Broadcasting Corporation. My question is, she says, 
considering the rising number of monkeypox cases in the DRC. Should the countries neighboring the DRC be worried? What about those that are trading with the DRC where people and goods move across the borders? And finally, she says, what precautions should these countries take? For instance, what should they do in terms of uh, preventive measures? No, thank you. <clears throat> thank you, Judith, um, uh, for that. Um, whenever there is an outbreak of any disease that is um, transmissible, then every community and country globally is at risk. Not just the neighboring countries, but everybody is at risk because the way in which we travel these days and communicate has changed. And uh, someone can be in uh, Addis Ababa today, and uh, by evening they are in um, Australia, the U.S., whatever, very far, not just a neighboring country. So um, we as Africa CDC are, uh, uh, continue to recommend that all countries need to enhance their surveillance mechanisms, all countries need to build capacity of their uh, health workers so that they are better prepared to identify the cases early. And all governments need to provide information to the members of the public so that they know what they should do um, in the event of exposure and they know what they should do to prevent uh, exposure. All countries on the continent, we are encouraging them to do this, not just those that are close to where a case may have been identified. In terms of trading, when it comes to um, uh, specifically monkeypox, um, the method of uh, transmission is such that you will not um, uh, get monkeypox from goods. You get it from close contact by either someone uh, who has monkeypox or an animal uh, that may have uh, uh, the virus. So trading, so long as um, it is conducted within the protocols that have been uh, established for monkeypox, uh, trading uh, should not uh, be one of those risk um, uh, uh, <clears throat> items when it comes to, or risky uh, uh, conditions when it comes to monkeypox. What should governments do? We have um, issued uh, at least twice now uh, advisories to our governments on um, uh, increasing um, early warning systems as uh, capacity, uh, ensuring that um, knowledge amongst health workers is high, knowledge amongst the members of the public is high, and uh, wherever possible uh, being part um, of um, the global movement of trying to get vaccines onto the continent and also therapeutics uh, onto uh, the continent. Preparedness and response um, is a very key part of resilience for this continent, and we are encouraging um, our governments uh, to ensure uh, that um, their systems for preparedness and response when necessary have been strengthened, and Africa CDC remains very available to support any and all governments here on the continent of Africa. Thank you. Aleta Wanjohi from FSN. What is the danger of us having delayed access to monkeypox vaccine supplies for Africa? Now that we see the numbers are increasing, 
Is there a plan B apart from just uh, making appeals to the developed countries? No, thank you, Coletta. The, the danger of delaying access is that the numbers become uh, larger, more communities and countries are affected, and therefore the risk um, will increase over time if we do not control uh, monkeypox uh, uh, quickly. Um, apart from um, asking, there are three stages here when it comes to um, uh, the, the, the vaccines that we need. One is the immediate uh, stage where we want to um, uh, immunize particularly the frontline uh, workers and the affected communities now so that we limit the spread of monkeypox. This you can only do with vaccines that have already been manufactured. Welcome back, and uh, that's going to conclude our program uh, for today. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal Worldwide Radio Broadcast. If you want to have access to this program, just go uh, to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll conclude with Kenny Burrell from the Freedom Album of 1963. This is Abayome Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.